Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as we bring to you yet again a guest speaker talk from the bi-monthly meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888. And what you are about to hear is the April 2017 talk by David Thompson. Mr. Thompson is a blue badge guide specializing in the historic architecture of London whose talk on this evening was entitled The Church Without, A History of Christchurch Spitalfields. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the Master of Ceremonies, Tony Power, coming to you from the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing David Thompson. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome once again to the Chamberlain Hotel, the lovely Chamberlain Hotel, here in the heart of London's East End, uh, just off Minories. And welcome to the April 2017 meeting. And it's great to see so many of you coming out here again to, to attend the meeting. And you're all very welcome. And we'd also like, as usual, to give a very big welcome to those of you who are listening into us through the Rippercast podcast. It's an excellent uh, podcast, so if you haven't listened to it, it's well worth it. We hope you enjoy what you hear. And if you want to find out more about the Whitechapel Society, then please visit our website, which is whitechapelsociety.com. And if you do go to whitechapelsociety.com, you'll find information about our latest book, which we launched in December of last year. And it's to celebrate 21 years of our society. And our very own Mark Galloway, well done, Mark, has picked out, a big cheer, um, has picked out a range of stories and, um, uh, and articles written over those 20, uh, 21 years. So we do have some available. Um, and you'll find out more on the website. So we hope that you, uh, you do that. So you're all very welcome. And I would also like to welcome David. Um, great to have you here, David. Thank you so much Thank for coming. You. I'm looking forward, really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. If I was to ask you to give me a building that was to sum up the East End of London, its history, and the linkage out the river, I'm pretty sure that all of us would point to this building that you see on the front of, uh, of David's slide, which is Christchurch Spitalfields. It's an amazing building. Um, I've got a very brief paragraph that I want to read. I've got a, a, mag- a bookazine, they call these things, by the way. It's too, too uh, small to be a book, too uh, big to be a magazine, whatever. Call a bookazine. It's called um, about, all about history, Jack the Ripper. Um, and it talks about the fact that there's not much left of uh, the 1880s London, but there is some. So I quote, uh, at first glance, it might appear that little, if anything, of Jack the Ripper's London has survived, whereas this is most certainly true with regard to the actual murder sites, all of which have now been obliterated. There are still six uh, sections of the East End changed little since 1888. It goes on to say, on the busy commercial street, the Ten Bells pub, linked with the final hours of Annie Chapman and Mary Kelly, is still doing a roaring trade, and opposite it stands one of the neighborhood's most poignant buildings, the soaring white tower of Christchurch Spitalfields. It dominates its surroundings today, just as it did in 1888. A towering and breathtaking edifice at which Jack the Ripper's victims might well have glanced on on a daily basis. It's one of those buildings that we all have walked past, and I know I've been past it numerous times, but I know very little about it. So I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing it, and who better to tell us than a blue badge guide, historian, art magazine editor, and who has a particular interest in architecture. Ladies and gentlemen, David Thompson. Thank you very much indeed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Can everybody hear me with this okay? 
Um, thank you very much indeed. It's very nice to be back here again um, and to see so many familiar faces. Um, I've always been interested in architecture in London, and I think that Nicholas Hawksmoor, uh, the architect of Christchurch Spitalfields, is one of the most extraordinary and enigmatic architectural figures that we hold in this country. In many ways, because we know actually very little about him, and we have to find out about him from records and from people's correspondence. Um, Nicholas Hawksmoor uh, began his career, um, a reasonable education, we'll assume, in the grammar school of Nottingham. He was a yeoman farmer's son. Uh, we have no real notion about how he uh, gleaned his interest in architecture, his ability to draw. And it was his ability to draw that effectively gave him his career. Uh, and it gave him his career in the office of none other than Sir Christopher Wren. At 18, he left Nottinghamshire, came to the city. We've no notion, again, as to how the introduction was made with the great man. Hawksmoor was 18, Wren was over 50. Wren had his major commissions, not least to design a new cathedral. But by 22, Hawksmoor is effectively his right-hand man. Now, it's nice to think that the 18-year-old had the chutzpah to knock on the door and talk his way in. There are various theories of introductions, but I think I'd like to stick with that. And even if it was a simple, straightforward introduction, he must have had the most extraordinary talent. But it was, and it was in later life, because as with many, uh, we might say, novice architects, if we think of the great practices today, like Foster and Partners, um, I mean, you can work your entire life and produce fabulous buildings and never get your own name accredited to one, because you always get your name accredited to the practice or the founder of the practice. And this might very well have been the case with Mr. Hawksmoor. I've always thought that Christopher Wren, and again, we know in some ways very little about Wren, and this is perhaps why we know little about Hawksmoor, Contrary to most men of learning in an age of learning, and these people were staggeringly learning, Wren could read the ancient languages and read the ancient texts on, on architecture himself. He didn't need trans translations. He didn't keep a journal. Now, most men of learning actually kept daily journals. Wren didn't, and neither did Hawksmoor. So we glean second and third hand. But this extraordinary structure, in some ways, the, the, you can't fail with Christchurch Spitalfields. However you look at it, however you take an image of it, or you just glance at it, it never fails to enthrall. Hawksmoor was perhaps the most audacious ever of English architects. He would not have used this term, but we will term him a Baroque architect. Theatricality. And with Hawksmoor, as with his master Wren, it's the play on, of light upon stone, deep recesses of stone and the play on it. Now, I mean, my goodness, we look at this structure, and I mean, it's audacious today. How must it have looked when it was actually built?
built between 1714 and 1729. It's a little bit difficult for me to do this absolutely, absolutely chronologically with Hawksmoor's life, so I will jump slightly. Hawksmoor gets a major break in 1711 with a government act, the 50 New Churches Act. Now, I don't need to tell the Whitechapel Society anything about the rise, the fall, what might have happened in this area, but what we're looking at is the government in 1711 came to the conclusion that what would be good, uh, effectively, to counterbalance what was simply termed unruly behavior was good Christian teaching. We're really looking at what would have been effectively the suburbs, and why I've entitled my talk tonight, The Church Without. We're without the city walls, and we have to think that Hawksmoor would have seen a walled city, the walls still in place. And beyond the walls, of course, foreigners, unruly behavior, not one of us. Um, so we're going to build 50 new churches. Of course, as with many great schemes, it fizzled out, and I suspect authorities such as English Heritage are perhaps rather re relieved that it did, or we, in the event only 12 were built, or we'd be today looking after another 38 as well if the Nazi bombers and Victorian developers hadn't been successful, or had been successful, hadn't been successful, that's right. Um, so the church without, and it still just about stands uh, proud in the area of Spitalfields, neighboring to, to Whitechapel, surrounded by lower buildings. Of course, the city is forever encroaching. And of course, when we think of the great height of these churches, and the idea of them was that they must stand proud above their surrounding neighborhood. Is this still working? Yeah. I've just come along the A13, and of course you pass St. Anne's Limehouse, and St. George's in the east, also Hawksmoor churches, and they would have stood up like great galleons above the, the surrounding neighborhood. So 12 churches are built. Hawksmoor gets the commission to build seven of them. Uh, Christ Church being arguably his most innovatory and the last to be completed in 1729. Now, the man, as I say, we know little about him. Uh, but by 22, he's a serious player in the office of Christopher Wren, who has to be undoubtedly the most influential architect in Europe. Neither Wren nor Hawksmoor, again, would have used the term architect. Christopher Wren was always the master surveyor, and latterly, master surveyor to the king's works. Uh, Hawksmoor would have termed himself a surveyor too. Um, we, the term architect, although it had been in existence, um, if you go to Woolerton Church near Woolerton Hall, near Nottingham, in fact, Hawksmoor may very well have been in that church and seen this very tomb, of John Smithson, the architect of Woolerton Hall, he is actually termed on his tomb architect. Now we're looking in the late 1500s. Uh, the, the only known image of Hawksmoor too, um, it sits in uh, All Souls Chapel, uh, 
college in Oxford. You'll find a replica of it in the National Portrait Gallery here in Trafalgar Square. Now, this imagery sums up Hawksmoor. It's, in fact, not from Christchurch. This is just, in many ways, a very simple facade on St. Mary Woolnoth at Bank Junction. But what it does, his sole uh, building accredited just to him within the city of London. But we see here what really sums him up. Simple lineage, simple design, but then he creates great drama by these banding sections. And they don't just go horizontal, they go down at angles and they actually curve into the concave alcoves of the window and the door head. In bright sunlight or even on the dullest of days, that's drama, it's theatre, which was really the essence of his style. And I love, in particular, this quote by Hawksmoor, because in some ways it's very prophetic as to what we see into the future. Whatever is good in its kind ought to be preserved in respect for antiquity, as well as our present advantage, for destruction can be profitable to none but such as live by it. Now, of course, if we know something of the story of Christchurch Spitalfields, by the 1960s, it's a seriously dilapidated building. It has a dangerous structures order on it. In the 1960s, I think we have to sort of get into the ethos of the time. We think of pulling down great structures such as Euston Station. We're trying to drag ourselves out of the grayness of World War II. We want to be seen as a modern thrusting nation, not backward looking. And bodies of opinion were that Christchurch Spitalfields, with a much, much reduced congregation, had lost its purpose and was effectively ready for the demolition ball. And like, in, in fact, like after Euston Station, St. Pancras, a saviour came on the scene in the form of Sir John Betjeman, poet laureate and great lover of architecture, who founded effectively what was then to be the Friends of, of Christchurch Spitalfields, who little did they know at the very beginning of their foundation that they were looking at a project that would go on to 40 years before they would actually see the church as we are fortunate to see it today. Um, now, Christopher Wren. Christopher Wren, I've always rather thought, again, from what we know of him and how he, we might say, passed the work around, was very encouraging to younger men who worked under him and would generally give them what we might say would be the element of a building, a new cathedral and 51 churches in the city of London, Wren would give them the spire, the tower to design, where you could actually produce some creative flair. So if, or not if, meeting uh, an obvious extraordinary talent such as Nicholas Hawksmoor, Wren would be both respectful and ultimately incredibly encouraging. Now here is Christopher with St. Paul's Cathedral, we'll say his ultimate masterpiece behind him. Now, this drawing of the dome, the cross-section of the dome, is by Hawksmoor. 
And we, from the surviving drawings, the majority held, uh, in, in, in fact, uh, by an Oxford College and by uh, that the cathedral archives itself, although now today placed under the auspices of the Guildhall Library in the City of London, the vast majority are by Hawksmoor. Now, to do a drawing such as this, you are not simply directed you would simply know the essence of construction. I mean, today's architects, Norman Foster, the late Zaha Hadid, and those extraordinary structures that, that they create or created, as with this great structure itself, an extraordinary piece of engineering, today's architects work with engineers. Here is my concept. How can we build it? Build it for me. And that might be being a little bit simplistic. And in fairness, people like Norman Foster always say, I want to know how it works and sit with the, with the engineer. Wren and Hawksmoor didn't have engineers. They would effectively have knowledge themselves, but they would work with the craftsmen who built the buildings. They would work with the masons, the people that would know the quality, the, uh, the, the capacity of stone, the placement of stone. And they would work with another set of hugely important men who sadly, of course, we don't celebrate today as we celebrate the masons. They, they, would, he, they would work with the carpenters and the joiners because the masons were only as good as the joiners. Great structures such as this, the internal elements of the dome would have to be constructed around, really, a wooden negative shape that the joiners and carpenters would build. Once the stone, the brick of the dome, was in place and held, their work was effectively taken out. Now, today's architectural drawings, of course, are all drawn immaculately to scale and instruction. If we were masons looking at that drawing, it's drawn to scale. We would be given the drawing, build this for me. And literally, by striking, knowing the scale and by striking off measurements with dividers, we would be able to operate our construction site and build it. It's really, in many ways, as simplistic as that. And hands-on men, such as Wren and then latterly Hawksmoor, would go to the sites, would talk to the experts who effectively were creating their structures, their, 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 their designs. How much influence Hawksmoor might have had on the design of the dome, we have no notion. We'll suspect it might have been considerable. Um, Wren used other uh, mines, other authorities to assist him, Robert Hooke, the scientist, for example. And Hawksmoor himself, if he's drawing, would have known what he was drawing and would have known how it worked and might very well have suggested to Sir Christopher, basically, as his much younger equal, what to do. Um, but his first real major break or I say major break, you don't get a more major break than working with Christopher Wren, when he begins to come out on his own. Um, into the 1700s, he meets John Vanborough. Now, we have a, 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 another absolute mystery here. 
John Vanborough is a playwright. Now we term him what a Baroque playwright, or from the Baroque period. Um, he's a liberal, a Whig, and he belongs to what was known as the Kit Kat Club, where all the the leading Whig liberal men were members. Now, the Earl of Carlisle commissions this man, who has never built anything in his life. I'm not saying that he couldn't be very competent at set design, commissions him to build a house. One of the two great Baroque houses of this land, Castle Howard in Yorkshire. Now, Vanborough does not have the ability to build it. He might have the ability to aesthetically direct. He needs someone to build it in the same vein as Christopher Wren's designs, and he employs Nicholas Hawksmoor. They work basically as equal partners. Sadly, again, in many ways, Vanborough, uh, no, Hawksmoor is in Vanborough's shadow. But once established on a project, Hawksmoor generally continued on his own. What we do know about him from letters and writing, um, it would seem he was a very genial man a very warm man, an easy man to get on with, which in some way is contradictory to what we might feel about some of his buildings, which, more of which shortly. He works at the Castle Howard estate throughout his life, and this round building, the mausoleum of the Howard family, one of his latter buildings, could readily be a city, part of a city of London church. Um, a most versatile man, as indeed he would have to be to cater to the stylistic tastes, uh, whims of his clients. And we are talking serious money here. But one also assumes that he would want to be as versatile as possible stylistically to understand and explore. Hawksmoor never left this country. Christopher Wren only left England once. He went to Paris, where he would have seen the great French palaces being built, and he would have seen domes being constructed. What they both had was a fabulous archive brought to this country by the man who introduced classicism to these shores, Inigo Jones. Inigo Jones, a court mask designer at the court of James I, goes to Rome. He copies the real thing. He draws from the ancient world. He surveys. But he goes on in search of then the most, arguably now, the most influential architect of all time, Andreo Palladio. He goes to Vicenza, where Palladio has built villas for the Venetian nobility, country houses. He's too late to meet Palladio himself, he meets the men who worked with him. They're now of advanced age, we'll, and we'll suspect he made an offer to them that they didn't refuse. They sold him Palladio's archives. And, of course, they're all in the V&A Museum today. <coughs> Excuse me. And, of course, Palladio wrote and published. Once we have publishing and printing, actually you don't need to go to see the real thing to copy it, you've got images of what it looks like. Now, this is based on clearly on a Roman temple. But 
you know, we don't stop with Castle Howard, then curiously, Vanborough gets arguably the commission of the age, Blenheim Palace. We want to celebrate John Churchill to become the first Duke of Marlborough. Uh, we're bashing up the French again in the wars, ultimately in the wars of the Spanish succession, and he ultimately vanquishes them in the, in the Battle of Blenheim, or Blenheim, as we pronounce it here. Queen Anne has a very intense, intimate relationship with Sarah Churchill, his wife. And the Queen wants to honour the great military hero. Vamber, again, is commissioned to design Blenheim Palace. Who does he take with him to design it, or effectively put it together, we might say, but Nicholas Hawksmoor. Now, this archway, I took this archway probably about three weeks ago. This is undoubtedly pure Hawksmoor. You see the drama of it, the simplicity of it. And right down to the bottom of these sort of pylon pilasters, either the flattened columns, resting on two sets of two stone balls. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's pure sort of fantasy stuff, imagery, and that deep set of, 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 the, en of the entrance. He begins to design in his own right, and this contemporary with the 50 new churches at the Clarendon building in Oxford. It's always great to photograph Hawksmoor buildings in black and white. If you see so many even contemporary books on him, all black and white photography, because it shows him to his best, even on a dull day, deep recesses always appear dark, and you can see the very form of the structure. And, of course, you might be surprised to know he also built on Westminster Abbey. The west, the top, tops of the West Towers are Hawksmoor. And the Abbey he had to build in perpendicular Gothic, effectively to uh, follow the rest of the form of the, the building. Um, but he couldn't resist getting a little Baroque details as well. Um, if you look very closely above the clock, above that entablature banding, of, of, of the, uh, let me just point out, if you look here, and you look here, we've got broken pediments, but curved pediments, you certainly don't get that in Gothic, and you've got swags of vegetables, fruits, flowers, leaves, so you can't resist having a little bit of a Baroque um, input on the Abbey as well. He was surveyor to the fabric of the Abbey, a position that still exists today, an architect effectively responsible for the maintenance of it, and until in fact this year, Hawksmoor's towers were the last addition to the Abbey. He's, he's been pushed a little bit out of joint this year because the current surveyor of the fabric, Ptolemy Dean, is at this very moment building a perpendicular lift shaft next to the chapter house because all of the Triforum, a very exciting time in 2018, the Triforum is going to open up as the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Galleries. We'll be able to get high up in the Abbey, see how it's put together, and it will hold the Abbey's museum collection. Um, I, I've always thought that Wren and Hawksmoor, in some ways generous men, would be very interested to see what others were building. 
but back to the churches. Now, this Hogarth's Gin Lane, we're a little out of kilter here, because what we see in the background here is a Hawksmoor church, St. George's Bloomsbury, one of his most fanciful ones. But this is what happens, and of course there's that sort of play really here too, I suppose with gin, if we think of the, the, the ten bells and the pubs around here, late Victorian times, the ripper, gin palaces. Everybody's so sozzled on gin. Um, buildings are collapsing, the world's ending. The woman here with syphilis scars on her legs, so out of it that her baby's clearly falling to his doom out of, out of her very, very arms. But this sort of sums up the very notion of what the 50 New Churches Act was about. If these people have good Christian churching, it'll set them on the, on, on, on the right road. Now, just look at this fanciful building. I think it's good to, to see, in a sense, what a superstar building Christchurch Spitalfields is. I mean, we really think the architect of Blenheim Palace, undoubtedly, he, it was a Hawksmoor, actually designed it. Well, this is St. George's Bloomsbury that can be seen in the, in the, in, in, in the back of uh, Gin, uh, Gin Lane. But it says something about Hawksmoor's psychology as well, because he takes his reference here, if you go into the British Museum and see the, the surviving elements of the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, which once had a great statue of the king on the very, the very top of it. Here he caps it with, with George I, but at the bottom we have these heraldic beasts. Now if you look at the beasts, the unicorn and the lion, they're not proud, fearsome, heraldic beasts. They're creatures in terror. They're, they're, they're right, look, at, look at the unicorn trying to ride away from some, some, some force. And if you look at Hawksmoor's buildings in general, particularly when we get to his churches, in contrast to his master Wren, Wren speaks of celebrating life, air and light. Hawksmoor's buildings are great ponderous behemoths. If, if, if anything, they remind, we're not celebrating life, they're reminding us of our mortality. Contrary to Wren, who is very much about civic pride, our city needs sensational buildings, and won't we feel good, and won't we feel powerful, Hawksmoor is very derogatory to the city. We, we, we have no city. We have mired roads filled with filth. Tumble down, tumbled down houses. But actually, whilst we're here, let's just look at the churches. So he gets commissioned to build, to build, to, to build seven. The first one we might say is a little bit of a cheat. It's St. Alfred's in Greenwich. There's already a church there, a medieval church, but it collapses. But we see, in a sense, his skill already here because Christian churches directed from the west to the east, of course you have a problem at, at Greenwich, just like Inigo Jones faced with St. Paul's in Covent Garden, that the, 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 the east end faces on effectively to the road. So 
you really want the West End to be the dramatic entrance as you go in and you're, you're directed east. So he puts this faux portico on, again, that deep-set recess. The two churches in Docklands, St. Anne's Limehouse, St. George in the East. As with Wren, he was a great admirer, too, of, of the work of the medieval masons, and undoubtedly what he takes his reference from, in fact, in both of these, in particular here, is Ely Cathedral. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Ely, with its lantern on the top. Both men, we certainly know Wren went to Ely. I see no reason at all why Hawksmoor wouldn't have accompanied him. Um, St. George's in Bloomsbury, and sadly the lost Hawksmoor Church, which of course we, we would never pull down today, in Bermondsey, burnt out during the war and, sub and, 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 and subsequently demolished. Its base, its podium survives. It's today got a 1960s building on the top of it, the city mission down Tower Bridge Road. But audacious here, he just has one single ionic column as its, as its tower. But we get on to Christchurch. I, I mean, Christchurch hemmed in by houses. I mean, Christchurch itself, that theatricality, easy to think as we approach it, that we're, going, we're facing a great square tower, but then when you get to the side elevation of the tower, it's actually relatively thin, and concave walls within. I mean, he takes... I mean, Hawksmoor has been hated throughout history by purists, and that's, I think, another thing that we've got to be so grateful we've still got the building because uh, I mean, it, quite, it, it, purists in, in architecture can be as destructive as really any vandal or, as Hawksmoor says himself, those who make profit out, out of destruction. It's nonsense. It's unworthy of attention. Let's get rid of it. Um, this... Venetian window, we might say, the this great entrance, far more dramatic in many ways than is necessary, but he wants to make that serious statement. Blind alcoves. People are always asking me when I take people to St. Paul's Cathedral, it's got blind alcoves round it. What happened to the statues? Were they lost or wasn't there enough money to put them in? But no, never intended because it's a trait of Baroque architecture. If you read, Richard Rogers is always talking about animated facades. Well, his buildings actually move, but of course Hawksmoor and Wren's buildings move as the sun moves round and the play of shadow changes. Um, now, I love this quote. Richard McCormack, who died probably about three years ago, um, his, one of his last buildings was the extension of Broadcasting House, the BBC at Langham Place, that new square behind. He was a, a, a Spitalfield habituee, and I just love this. It sort of sums it up. Walking past Christchurch, and that is his spelling of Christchurch, by the way, as I have done daily for many years, has not made Hawksmoor's masterwork familiar to me. Now, that's, he's been complimentary. Its great architectural gestures retain their strange potency and continue to astonish and invite my curiosity. So every time you look at it, 
the building looks different. You see a different aspect to it. I mean, just this little clip. I mean, how dramatic is that? But yet, when I talk about the simplicity of line, it's not highly decorative. Horizontals, undecorated columns, oculi windows, this curved sort of Diocletian archway. But it's it, it just the drama of simplicity. I mean, it's very interesting to see, to sort of consider how someone like sort of Mies van der Rohe, he of less of more, would have made of it. Um, Hawksman, as I say, would not have used the term Baroque. Baroque in this country, English Baroque, is much simpler than if we go to in, into France or Austria, Germany, and see great Baroque churches. Now, if we look at the plan of the church, I mean, Hawksmore goes back to classical learning, classical understanding. The very body of the church is, in fact, a simple Roman basilica. And we do have to thank the Romans, really, for how our Christian churches aligned today. Um, what we would call a nave, two rows of columns, and aisles, generally people walking about the aisles in discussion, where we have the altar, a dais, a raised uh, platform, where the governor or whoever was dispensing justice might sit, and then latterly Roman temples built exactly the same. So, of course, as the Roman Empire began to convert Christianity, the pagan temples were turned into Christian churches. Now, again, we see what, what Hawksmoor is doing as rendered on his city churches. He's taking the ancient writings. And what um, Palladio, in his, term, in his turn, would have done likewise. There is a beauty at what we'll get with this structure when we get inside, because, of course, columns of the aisles enable us to have galleries but just to sort of look at this, this structure is just really quite extraordinary. And then he's audacious enough to cap it with a stone spire or, or, or obelisk. And all sitting on a, on a raised podium to contain a crypt. The crypt originally for burials will get onto the crypt, one of the, the, the later projects. I mean, if you look at Palladian houses, Palladian churches, Italian churches, you really see the reference to Christchurch, but Hawksmoor takes his own individual styling, not, not least that sort of outrageous spire on the front of it. Even to doing a drawing, a scaled drawing of the plastered ceiling work, because when you go into Christchurch, I suspect there are people, I'm going to show you photographs of the interior before the restoration began, um, you'll be familiar with what's been put back. Uh, it's interesting to speculate about the interior because he much follows, in a sense, his master Wren, but use, using, uh, in particular, foreign plaster masters to create these fabulous relief patterns. Now, the aim of Hawksmoor's buildings internally, as with Wren, no colour. We're looking at plain glass, and we're looking at glass at the time that was not translucent as we look out of glass here. You could see forms outside, but it would send in a filtered light. 
Wren termed the churches, and I've no reason to believe that Hawksmoor would have thought otherwise, my boxes of light. Now, I mean, so you just look at that. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I mean, it's just a simple box. But these great round portholes directing light in. A Venetian window. This is always a Venetian window with a rounded top and a rectangular window either side. And that great steeple. And of course, it is enigmatic to think this church, if the stones of the church could speak, what they've actually seen and who actually walked past and life about. More on that very shortly. I mean, even astonishing today to think that anyone might ever have thought of pulling it down. I mean, it's just really worth sort of looking at, just in a sense, how outrageous it is. But I mean, it is essentially a sculpture. And I really do sort of consider that, that as an architect, he really worked to, cons to construct a sculptural form. Now, let's have a little bit look at the sort of what went on in the church. Because if we think about the different communities, um, some of the first people to use the church would have been French Huguenots, French Protestants, obviously in the surrounding streets. But particularly in the, in the vestibule of the church, you'll find a lot of memorials with Hebrew on the bottom. Of course, we've got the, the Jewish community moving in. But we've got one sort of particular sect of Jews. Now, this man's very interesting, the Reverend Aaron Stern. I'm just going to read you a little bit that was published in the Jewish Chronicle about him in the on the 9th of January, 1914. Um, it talks about Henry Aaron Stern and his association with the Falasha, let me get this right, Falasha Jews of Abyssinia. Now, according to the Jewish Chronicle report, it goes as follows. The Falashas were introduced to English history by the German-born ex-Jew, who'd once had a Jewish-Hebrew background, Henry Aaron Stern. He went to Abyssinia in 1859 to convert them to Christianity. They weren't turning their back on their old religion, but they'd found Christianity. King Theodore of Abyssinia gave him permission to do this, but afterwards withdrew his support, put him in prison, and had him tortured. A, this is gunboat diplomacy. A British military expedition of 1868 under the command of Lord Napier was sent to liberate Stern and to punish King Theodore. This led to Theodore's downfall and the release of the Reverend Henry Aaron Stern, who, until recently, was a long-term resident in the crypt beneath the church. So it very much began to take on the Jewish community um, who began to settle in, in the area next. Now, this man is in particular very interesting, Edward Peck, because he was one of the commissioners of the 50 New Churches Act, um, very magnificently commemorated in, in 1737 in Hawksmoor's church and would have been responsible for commissioning him to build it and would have been effectively responsible for approving the designs. The funding for the 50 new churches was yet again a tax on sea coal, which everybody burnt in the city, 
exactly the same as the cathedral and Wren's churches. Now, we get to the Victorians. Now, things architecturally began, begin to go downhill very quickly. Um, Ewan Christian, quite a prolific Victorian architect. The Victorians, of course, were notorious for marching into people's buildings, making changes to them and infamous restorations as to how they thought they should be, made significant changes to the church. His known building in central London was the National Portrait Gallery. Now what he did, if we see this south facade, inside a gallery, lower windows, crypt, what we, we might say a triforum set of windows, and then a clerestory, he knocked these two windows into one. So in a sense he compromised the interior space and he compromised the exterior appearance. He also was to take out the internal galleries. I think this drawing really sort of sums it up what he actually did to it. So we've got the full length windows now and no upper galleries. I mean, this church, these churches were seriously built for numerous members of very, very large congregations. Now, we'll think by the mid-Victorian period, I suppose we might have a little bit of sympathy. The congregation might be getting a little bit sparse or not quite as um, intense as those church commissioners expected to be, but he seriously compromised Hawksmoor's design. Now, and of course, the Victorians are notorious for reintroducing coloured glass. Now, you've got a bit, this still exists today in the east end of the church over the altar. Of course, you do have a problem I've talked about purists in architecture. You do have to have some, I think, element of compromise when you're restoring a building. Because if you're not careful, you take out the excrescences of age and what other people put into it. Um, which, of course, in many ways, is what the Victorians themselves did. But the general opinion of the parochial council was to retain the window. Mr. Hawksmoor would most definitely not approve. Um, originally, the church was even more audacious. It had these little ratchet windows all the way up the steeple as well. The church was struck by lightning in the mid-Victorian period, and I suppose we should be grateful that it was actually put back, but in a simplified form. But I love this when you begin to get the idea of street life above this great building. And the very fact that you go up it, up the steps, so you're ascending towards God, and then you're within this sacred space. I think it's good to get an idea of general life around, because 1890s, the area around Christchurch is, let's just say, a rum place. Um, beautifully photographed historically by Jack London, who talks about the people of the abyss, the, the, miserable, the miserable life that people lived. Now, Christchurch, as indeed today, became synonymous with homeless charities, give, giving uh, shelter to those who need it. Now, I mean, this in some ways sort of sums up life in that Victorian era. Here's the house of God. Now, you don't get more direct in your advertising, do you? I mean, <laughs> money lent. 
It doesn't say anything about how much interest you've got to pay when you, when you pay it back and you run along to the ten bells here and have your gin with the money, the money that you've borrowed. And people sheltering in, the, in the, lee, the lee of the building. If you read Jack London's memoirs, he talks about the sheer misery and, uh, and the human distress. So the crypt, cert certainly um, in the interwar years and beyond, becomes a homeless shelter. We might say one of the first of its kind. And I mean, these, these sort of photographs in a sense sort of sum it up. And I mean, I have to say, I mean, I've been in London since the 1970s and I can sort of just begin to sort of remember this. You see the work of Don McCullen and photographers like, like that, tramps and people in the, in, in the East End. But John Betjeman comes along because Christchurch by the, the 60s is in dire straits. A huge heavy galleon, and that's what it was always meant to be, of white Portland stone anchored among the red brick Queen Anne houses of the weavers. Of course, what we're appreciating that Mr. Hawksmore would never have been able to appreciate, and neither Christopher Wren and St. Paul's, neither of them would have seen their buildings clean. Raised on a tax on sea coal, they would have blackened as they rose. But the interior... Um, People here who remember the interior like this, it was completely stripped. Some of its ceiling plasterwork survived. Christian had taken out wooden galleries. The floor was stripped. The plaster was stripped. The walls were just bare, bare brick. You saw the, the, the bare rudiments of the building. It was often open at the weekend. It wasn't working as a practicing church. And... At the time, I'll be quite honest, I thought it was fantastic. And when I heard that the church was going to be restored, I was mm, not really sure about that, because this totally unexpected space where you saw the purity of, of line and proportion of a classical building, and you could read the building, how it was put together. But money's a significant amount of money was was fine. First of all, next one. Oh, well, let's just look at these first of all. I mean, it was really one that nobody here saw it like this. It was just extraordinary. It was often open on a, on a sort of a Sunday afternoon with custodians in it. People loved the sense of the building. Now, it's by no means saved at this point. This is probably early 1980s. And you see just the, the, that, that sort of the drama of, of, of the simplicity of his form. Now, of course, what the friends had to do, first of all, was to make it firm. I mean, the, the best quote on architecture is a credit to Henry Wooten, um, a diplomat and courtier of Queen Elizabeth that said of buildings and know what elevates a building to architecture a building must have firmness it must be well built commodity, space and delight and it's the delight that elevates it to architecture Now, the first thing that the friends had to do was make it firm 
because it was seriously unfirm, not least the roof. Now, this is the roof before restoration. And now the roof, if you go up into the space, which I have done, has this very subtle metal structure, rod structure, and cross braces to hold it in place. Now, serious monies begin to come in, but it's not really until um, the, right about the turn of the millennium that, of course, we have the National Lottery. I don't know what we'd have done without the National Lottery, who ultimately gives somewhere in the region of four and a half million to the church. And the idea, arguably the most successful piece of the restoration, is the reimposition of the galleries and breaking up the windows again as, from you and Christian's work as Hawksmoor intended. Um, and the galleries, how many people actually know the church inside? So, I mean, quite a lot of people don't. I mean, I, I really do recommend you go in and walk about. The custodians there will let you go up into the galleries because, of course, you get a, an entirely different feel. Of course, the church is still a very flourishing church, but the beauty of classical proportions is it produces a wonderful acoustic. And, of course, the Spitalfields Music Festival every year is deeply popular, recitals, etc., and the church, what Mr. Haw if Mr. Hawksmore, the main architect of the restoration was a man called Red Mason. That sounds a bit like, was it Red, somebody who used to go and put out oil well fires, wasn't it? But he, <laughs> Red Mason said, and I think it's right, if Mr. Hawksmore walked in today, he would recognize his work. And that's the important, that's the important thing. The church, let's get to the next one. The difference of what he wouldn't recognize today was, of course, in his day, it was simply a place of worship. You weren't going to have anything else in it. And there would have been box pews, solid pews, fixed pews. The pews haven't been put back to make a more versatile space. But craftsmen, craftspeople brought in. Uh, Triton Purcell, the architectural practice responsible for... The, the rest for the restoration. People are always saying to me, we couldn't do it today. And I always say, well, actually, we can. There are many skilled people that can practice the real arts. So a new floor is the, the, the constructive arts, I should say. A new versatile floor is put in so we can even have dancing within it. But the... the, 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 the extraordinary beauty of the carved plaster work. And you've got a wooden structure inside this column head, the base moulding put on, and then the refinements con uh, concluded in place. Now that really sums up what Hawksmoor's about, the play of light. If you didn't have light on that and shadow, you wouldn't be able to see how actually intricate it is. But the utter wonder of these barrel vaultings. I mean, it has to be said about the 50 New Churches Act. If we're in an area where we think good Christian teaching is needed because it's so unruly, they were really no expense spared constructions, which in many ways was perhaps to the detriment of the Act, why in the end only 12 were actually built. 
but the detailing such as the railings. Now, these would have been a later edition, Victorian railings. And of course, you've got to think again, but, but constructed this century, you've got to think again when you're restoring, what do you put back and how purist must you be? But if something was deemed, what we might say, aesthetically pleasing, then it was recreated. You see, and, and even when you get up to these things high up, and this would be very high up on the ceiling, they're incredibly detailed, even, even sort of the, 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 um, the ruching of the petals. And so the wonder of the full glory of the church of the church today. With its galleries again. Now, to the stone from to the glory of God, Christ Church restored, 1976, 2004. But one thing is not restored: the the organ. Uh, the organ has now been very beautifully restored and is playing once more. Because to construct uh, what we might say restore an ancient uh, instrument, because it is a great instrument of course, takes a number of millions of pounds itself. So the organ within the last three years, oops, back again, that's it, and again, everything taken to pieces, and we're not just looking at an instrument, of course, in those days, we don't just make an instrument, we make an artwork as well to put the instrument inside. This man re-lime-washing re and then gilding this pooty's face. I mean, this itself is sort of 50 feet up. And the sheer detailing of the work around it. And this sort of the outrageous idea of sort of crown and church, two mitres. The, the churches are known as the Queen Anne churches, because they were all effectively started within the Queen's reign. I mean, it's almost like sort of something off a fairground, isn't it? And now the full glory of the organ, how it looks today. Now, I, I rather like this. This public vault being full was closed. 1818-15, numerous long-term residents are placed in the, un in, in the underground crypt. And so the next... Oh, oh this, of course, the parts of the crypt that were accessible is used during World War II for, sh for shelters. I, people in rows of deck chairs, which I suppose to be in the church crypt, was probably as safe as, as you get anywhere. Now, this man is extraordinary. This is a, a cutting from the Daily Mail... Now, I don't know what happened to the original occupant of this coffin, but his name is Michael O'Connor, a labourer. He's lost his house, he's been bombed out. And he said to uh, the Daily Mail, quotes him as saying, he spends his nights reading, eating and sleeping in his coffin. And Michael O'Connor himself is quoted as saying, and very comfortable it is too. But we sort of see think of something of what life was like still in the crypt of, of, of Christchurch Spitalfields. But now, after the restoration, we go one further. The ethos of the diocese is that this building or the crypt, it's not 
for the dead, it's for the living. All the long-term residents have now been taken out, given Christian, Christian burial. And this remarkable, uh, I think, injection in, into, the, into the church, into the body of the church, by a practice called Dow Jones, a, a very versatile space. But what they also do is they've stripped it back to its, its bare rudiments, and you see how, how the structure is constructed. And I mean, of course, that's why people like Hawksmore, we're not just looking at something fancy. We're looking at their understanding of basic engineering to hold up a structure that we could then decorate and, and create this glorious structure. Now, James Sterling, I quite like the idea of architects learning from each other as Hawksmore learnt from Palladio, learned from Wren, James Sterling we think of as a post-modernist after World War II, and indeed before, if we think of architectural movements such as Bauhaus, Mies van der Rohe, less is more, we do away with any historic reference. Clean lines, new materials. James Sterling is a great admirer of Hawksmoor. And you'll all be familiar with his number one poultry building in the, in, in the city of London. And of course, even this fanciful thing, if you begin to analyse it, its lineage, its shapes, its forms, they're relatively simple. But you get the drama of the triangular pointed windows, this great circular structure, and the drama of the contrasting stones and that deep recess entrance. And one of the most recent, most contemporary monuments in the church, it's just in the vestibule, in, just on the left of the right hand door, is to James Sterling himself, 1992, whose own funeral service took place in the church, still very much un, 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 unfinished. Um, and I, his, the money from uh, his funeral collection went to the restoration of the church. So always an ongoing project. And this idea, Mr. Hawksmore would understand what that recession of arches is all about, this simple but dramatic entrance. And as we see here on, num on number one, poultry. And I just really finish off with this, because in the crypt is a very small, um, very spiritual place for private prayer. And one of the latest uh, additions to the church, of course, having just said that Mr. Hawksmore would not have introduced colour, I think we can allow it with a, a, a contemporary crypt and contemporary uh, retrofit. This beautiful stained glass artwork is in, in the door. Uh, you can go into the church at any time and you can just see all of these items. So that's just a little bit of some essence of this great building. How it was, I think that's the last one, is it? Yes how it came to be, and really the superstar architect who built it. Um, if you read people writing about him, he seems to have been a most genial man. Even the Duchess of Marlborough at Blenheim Palace, the client from hell, 
who is so appalling to Vanborough, he eventually just chucks it in. He can't live with this anymore. She changes everything. She changes her mind every five minutes. She's rude to him. Hawksmore takes over. In her letters, in Hawksmore's later life, she talks to her trustees, I pray thou will be kind to Mr. Hawksmore. Um, in his later life, he developed very bad gout and lost the use of his legs. So he had to be carried about. And of course, when he couldn't travel and see the projects, and as a hands-on man like his master, Wren, to actually go into the buildings, climb up them, see how they were built, this is a disaster. I mean, he's effectively lo losing his ability and his art. Now, it's quite interesting because, because a few years ago, people here might have read Peter Ackroyd's novel, Hawksmoor. Peter Ackroyd, arguably the London writer, in some way did Hawksmoor the greatest misservice because he plays on the idea that you go into Haw you see Hawksmoor's buildings and these great ponderous structures, they're oppressing us. There must be something satanic here. That Hawksmoor is in fact a detective. The churches are built by an, an architect, Nicholas Dyer, who is in league with the devil and is in fact placing the churches on the points of the pentangle and is going to raise one central church. And each of the church to call up Lucifer and each of the churches are completed with a human sacrifice, where Nicholas Dyer, i.e. Hawksmoor himself, always sort of invites the cherubic choir boy, shall we go up the tower and look at the view? Oops, there's a loose plank. Choir boy falls off. So I'm afraid he probably did Hawksmoor the very greatest misservice in his novel, but it is a cracking good read, and he does very much understand the atmosphere of these buildings, as atmospheric they, they, they are. And that's why I think I was a little, well, more than a little alarmed when I knew Christchurch was going to get restored, because when you saw the raw structure of the building, it had a resonance and an atmosphere unlike anything else in this city. I do think the restoration is absolutely sensational. I have to say now it's there. And Mr. Hawksmoor would undoubtedly recognize it and be honored. So thank you very much. Well done. That was fantastic. Okay. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a 20-minute break, so please do have a drink, go for a cigarette, um, and then come back here in about 20 minutes, and then we, um, David is happy to take questions, okay? So thanks very much. Yeah, we're going to go into some questions, and then uh, we can all go home. Do you have a question right here at the front? Yep, and then I think, Lindsay, you've got a question. Hi, David. Hi. Hello. Um, when you were saying about the, the plate that's inside the church itself, with the reference to the Huguenots, did you gloss over that because you don't know too much about it, or do you know anything about the involvement of the Huguenots with the church? Um, I didn't <laughs> intentionally gloss over anything. Um, no, but you went you, past it pretty fast by then referring mostly to the Jewish well, section. I, I think by the time the church was built, in a sense, the, the Huguenots were still very much there, but I don't think that they, the Huguenots had their own church at the time, which is now the mosque at the, end, the other end of Fournier Street. I, I'm not necessarily aware of a lot of Huguenot connection with Christchurch. 
Um, I mean, it was basically, Christchurch was imposed on the East End by the church commissioners who worked out where they were needed, which is a bit of a curiosity. And I mean, I think the Huguenots, in a sense, the last thing they wanted was good Christian teaching, because that's effectively why they came here. Unless you know something else, I mean, I... I, 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 I was thinking that you were going to know more. I mean, um, it's that they should have a reference of, of them in the church on a plaque. Well, the Huguenots would have known about it. I, I mean, it, all, all around those streets, as you know. Yeah, yes. No, that, it was Huguenot that, property. That's right. And I mean, in, in some ways, Christchurch is contrary to the ethos of what the Act of Parliament was, 50 new churches. It was where good Christian teaching was needed. So in those still grand houses when Christchurch was built, because Mr. Hawkesmore also designed the rectory behind it, the first house on, on, on the right, um, it seems almost misplaced. But that was what the, the, what the act was about. I, I, I'm not aware of a great Huguenot history of it. Okay. I, I've known that the Huguenots would have used it, but they did have their own church. And I suspect in the Huguenot church they probably spoke in French as they do in the Huguenot church in Soho to this day. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, David. Uh, we have another question here from, uh, from Lindsay. Go ahead, Lindsay. Hi, David. Just want to say thank you for a great Hi, talk. Really enjoyed it. Um, just before I ask a couple of questions, I just wanted to let you know that when I lived in Oxford for many years, I was an architectural tour guide and historian, so I know the Wren buildings quite well and the Hawksmoor All Souls College. Did you ever go and see the, uh, the Hawksmoor exhibition, which was on at the Ashmolean a few years ago? It's called Hawksmoor's Oxford, and it was fantastic. If you get a chance to get the book on it, I highly recommend it. It's quite hard to find. And it basically shows all of Hawksmoor's plans for the whole of the city of Oxford, for all the colleges, um, in the style he would have drawn in. And then, of course, some of those, most of them weren't taken up. Um, so, but it's a fascinating book, because Oxford would have looked very different um, to the way it does today. But that, that's Oxford. And my fiancé is actually the building you showed on a slide... Uh, the Clarendon building, yes. that was my fiancé's office, so I used to spend a lot of time in there, and I worked next door at the Sheldonian Theatre, of course, a Wren building, and during the time I was assistant manager there, we actually um, restored the ceiling, which had not been looked at since Wren had actually installed it, mm -hmm. and he didn't physically do the painting, obviously, it was another painter, but mm -hmm. to actually get up that close and actually to look at all the, the mm -hmm. sort of Wren, you know, finite details mm -hmm. was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. But so thank you. She brought back a lot of memories for me, sort of oh, looking at Wren and Hawksmoor things. I, I mean, in answer to your question, I'm afraid I didn't see the exhibition. Try and get the catalogue. It's, it's worth seeing. Hawksmoor, as many great architects, of course, only a small proportion of the schemes and plans ever came to fruition. So yes, I do know about what he wanted Oxford to be. Yeah, just wanted the stones. Yes. Where were they quarried from that built Christchurch? Do you know? We're looking at Portland Stone again. Damn. For, of the Dor Dorset Coast. Dorset Coast. Yes. And just one final thing, thank you. It was where were the bodies reinterred to? Do you know? It was one of the made. Well, somebody had. So where I said some of them were cremated, but I've always understood, um, because it isn't unique to empty this crypt. I mean, Hawksmoor does have some accreditation with St Luke's at Old Street. 
Um, and the bodies, the crypt there was emptied, and they were taken to one of the major South London cemeteries, not one of the old Victorian cemeteries. Um, uh, I'm going to say near sort of Guildford Waybridge Way, but I, I'm afraid I don't immediately know. But I'm, I was told that quite a lot were cremated. Uh, that's great. Thank you very much. It's, uh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I actually witnessed the yes, excavation of the bodies in 87, and a lot of them were actually uh, cremated and actually buried in the gardens at the front of the church. Thanks so much. Go ahead, Kieran. Hi, David. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask you if you know how much um, it cost to build at that time, or the equivalent in today's money? What, what, I'd have to look up what it would be the equivalent of today's money. What I, I'm afraid I can't give you an immediate answer to that. What I can give you an immediate answer is that with Mr. Hawksmoor's works, they always went dramatically over budget. Because, I mean, this was built... Look, I mean, it, it took... Um, what are we looking at? 15 years to build. That's a long time. St. Paul's Cathedral took 35 years, so if you think of the scale of that and this 15, I suspect it was a bit bitty in how it was built. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I would have to look it up. To be honest, I look, tried to look up that figure, and I know there's a website that says how much at the time these buildings cost. I'm afraid I don't immediately know. Um, just a, another quick one, if I may. Um, yes. Uh, do you know if it was bombed during the Second World War? Uh, Christchurch survived relatively intact. Thank you, David, for an excellent talk. I've, I very, very much enjoyed that. Um, just following on from Mark and Lindsay's point about the, the excavation of the crypt, uh, a few years ago I did an archaeology course for, for a number of years, uh, and one of the things we had to do was study the two-volume report the, uh, on, on the excavation. Uh, and much of that, to be honest, very dry and uh, went over my head, to be honest. But um, some of the conclusions they were able to draw from the, uh, from the skeletal remains that were examined were, were absolutely amazing. Yes. And I think the one that stands out in my mind the most is the skeletal remains that were in coffins that had plaques on them. So yeah. they knew the age of uh, death of, of the person in there. And the examination of the skeletal remains found that, particularly in females, uh, the amount of uh, osteoarthritis present in those skeletal remains for, say, a woman of comparable, comparable age today uh, was considerably less, you know, and you would have expected there to, to be more oh, osteoarthritis. Right, oh. no, uh, less than, the, than the, a woman yes. of the same age today. And the conclusion that was drawn was a high fish diet. Ah. Um, so the moral of all of that is take your fish oils. Take your fish oils, yeah. yes. Thank you for the advice, yes. Sue. I learned sweet, this is completely off tangent, that Billingsgate Market only survives because of the trade with Chinatown. They'd even moved Billingsgate to Heathrow because a lot of the fish have flown in, but it's the Chinese market that keep that going. It's extraordinary. So yes, all those fish from the, the, the Thames... Billingsgate. And there was, it was cheap, herrings and things. Thank you for an interesting talk, first of all. My question's about the fact that when the Church Commission wanted to put up the 50 steeples 
I, I heard somewhere that they wanted the steeples to dominate the skyline, and it was the sort of thing of God looking down on you and well, putting the fear of God into them to behave or something that, along that, those that, lines. That, that's true, because the idea that the buildings then, and there's an irony now that the once tallest building in the neighbourhood is now getting dwarfed. If you look at Mr. Wren's churches and things, they're all getting boxed, boxed in. There was, all, there was always... Um, there was also some political rivalry here as well, because the Tories came to power after a lot of Whig domination of Parliament. So they were also looking at, in a sense, a monument to victory. The fact that another reason why the Act ran out and only 12 were built is they fell out of power very quickly. But the, yes, so, so the idea of dominating the skyline, I mean, this church is, is, is I mean, you, you're going up towards heaven and God, and look at this great ponderous thing bearing down on you. It's quite, I mean, Hawksmoor's buildings are very contrary to what we know about the man. Because you, you could actually think he might be bipolar or manic depressive in some ways. Okay. But yeah. it was a dual thing the dominance of God and the dominance of, of politics. Okay, we have one more question from the front here. Hi, David. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, not so much a question, just a, kind of a, an amusing observation. Um, I remember meeting, uh, reading um, Aykroyd's book, and of course I'm interested in things occult, which yes, you might know about. And I pentacle, no way. So I got a Google map, and I, in those days, I can't quite do it the same now, but I put a dot on every Hawksmoor church, including St. John's Horsley Down, and, you know, I included Westminster Abbey because, you know, his yeah. involvement with that and St. Alphage. I could not make a pentacle out of that no matter no, what I, I did. Wait, wait. But what I did get to my surprise, do you know about what is called the Wadjet Eye, the all-seeing eye? It's that Egyptian eye yes, with yes, the very yes, strong yes. eyebrow, the very yes, eye yes, with the long yes, line, and then yes. there's a teardrop coming down. Yes. I started joining the dots, and I got the all-seeing eye with no problem whatsoever. Ah. I've done, I'll send a copy. Yes. Um, I'll, give me your email, and yes, I'll send you a copy yeah. of my, my Google map, okay. and it's absolutely jaw-dropping. Ah. Anyway, just you know, out so of curiosity. A new, a new theory. Great. Thank the, you for the, that. Okay, there's uh, another question at the Thank back. You. Can everybody hear me? Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Steve? Can you hear me yeah, okay? Yeah. Hang on. Okay? Yeah, that's better. Great. It's just a short thing to build on what Sue said. There is a DVD out. It's been out for a lot of years, but called The Skeletons of Spitalfields. And it tells that whole story, and it shows everybody and what happened. And it's quite, quite wonderful. And if you're interested in Christchurch at all, it would be important. Ah. Excellent. Okay, thanks very much. Um, yeah, we'll have a question at the back. Here we go. Yeah. Hello. Really Hello. enjoyed your um, talk. Um, it hasn't always been a Christian church, has it? Sorry? I can, I can remember them being um, uh, mosques. No, uh, uh, Christchurch has always... The question, it hasn't always been a, a Christian church. Christchurch has always been a Christian church. At the other, I think we might be confusing at the other end of Fournier Street, the, 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 the building that's currently the mosque. 
sums up what this part of London's about. It was built by the Huguenots as a Christian church. It became a synagogue when, in a sense, their authority diminished. The Jews moved in. The Jews moved out. The Bengalis moved in. It's now a mosque. But, I mean, I, 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 this is, what should we say... I think a, a, a very broad church in, in terms of, 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 of Christian practice within it. So there might very well be representation of other religions. I mean, I have to admit, I've never attended a service here, but I understand that's what it is. But it hasn't been, a, it's always been a Christian church. Okay, are there any other questions? Um, oh yes, one at the front. Before we just get to the front, um, Lindsay, we were just coming back on the cost of the church. It was cost just under forty thousand. Forty thousand pounds. That would be a staggering amount. Um, I had no notion immediately what that would be today, but a multi-million-pound building, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Just, just following up on the uh, lady's uh, questionnaire, uh, who would have actually? attended the services at the time. Uh, I know, obviously, you said that it was built by the Huguenots and the uh, sort of the area was quite well-to-do at the time, but would that have been all the community? And what does it serve now? You say, obviously, it's been um, redeveloped and uh, do they still hold services there, like Sunday normal services? Uh, OK, but so two questions. I mean, it's all very interesting you think about the 50 churches that what these unruly people need is good Christian teaching you'd have to somehow get those unruly people into the building to get the, the Christian teaching, which I suspect was a bit of, sort of naivety of the act. How did you make people do that? Um, at the beginning, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that there was a lot of optimism because of the sheer volume of people you can get in that church when all those galleries and everything is, is, everything is full. It's still very much a practicing church with Sunday morning services. Um, as I, I, I'm sorry, I haven't been, so I don't know how well populated it is. I, I understand... Should I use the term, it's quite an evangelistic church with lots of music and movement and praising. I, I, that's what I understand. Uh, because I did ask one day when I was going around the church, is the organ played for the services? And the person that spoke to me said, no, it isn't. We're looking at guitars and so forth. Okay. So I'm afraid... I'm not answering the question very well because I just haven't attended. Perhaps we should all go to service one Sunday and boost, boosted the service. I, I don't think there's any question about it. I'm afraid this wasn't, I don't think this was in any way restored for Christian worship. That's a, that's a very happy add-on because it was a consecrated building. It was restored because of the beauty of the architecture and the structure. Um, you know, that's and, and and the organ, the organ is played at various for the music festival and so forth. Okay, well, unless there's any other questions, we are going to wrap up there. I would. Oh, we have one question from a lovely lady at the back. Oh, it's a it's a pity that you didn't have um, a photograph from maybe the 60s or the 50s when it was black and it was in really disrepair because it might have been more obvious why people would let it get like that. Now it looks beautiful that it's cleaned. 
but years ago, even St Paul's was black. I remember it being black, it being and it, it's beautiful now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, I'm just going to sort of, in a funny sort of way, contradict what I feel about it. In a funny sort of way, I'm not sure that I do describe it as a beautiful building. This is the, the contradiction of Hawksmoor. I'm not in any way going to say it's a horrible building, but if you think of that quote of Richard McCormack, every time I look at it, I don't understand it. It throws something else at me. I mean, I, I, I would say it's an extraordinary building. That, 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 that's, I'm not sure I would ever use the term beautiful. It's an in, the interior is beautiful. Yeah. The ex in fact, in some ways, the interior, I think, is very conventional, or certainly at the time of Hawksmoor. Its exterior was shockingly unconventional. I mean, it shows something of the originality of the mind of this man. And, it, I mean, and, and by and large, he was a self-taught made man. But he, I mean, he had good connections. And I mean, the, the notion of working for Christopher Wren from meeting him at 18 and at 22, he's the great, uh, the great surveyor's right-hand man is extraordinary. I mean, he must have just had an extraordinary talent and an ability to verbalize it. Okay, and on okay. that note, we shall call a halt. Please give a big round of applause to David Thompson. Thank you very much, yeah, David. Very, very. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a, just a, a pleasure to come back here. Please Thank do. You. Please do. Uh, I will. And that was David Thompson and The Church Without, A History of Christ Church Spitalfields. I would like to thank David Thompson for his cooperation in releasing his presentation. Regular listeners may recall the talk we released from the Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday celebration where David spoke about his great-grandfather, P.C. Ernest Thompson, who discovered the body of Whitechapel murder victim Francis Coles. And if you haven't heard that talk, then I encourage you to check it out. I would also, of course, like to thank the committee of the Whitechapel Society for their continued partnership with Rivercast in making their bi-monthly guest speaker talks available to the wider public. And a huge thanks to Steve Ratty for being the sound man at this event and making the recording and release of this talk possible. Another excellent job, Steve. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, please feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.